I want to invite everyone to open your Bibles to Exodus chapter 32. Exodus is the second book in the Bible, begins with Genesis, the book of origin, and now we, and then it leads into Exodus, the story of God's liberation. And uh, we've, been, we've been walking through the book of Exodus, and it's crazy to think that we only have two more weeks uh, this week, and then we close out the book next week. Uh, it's been exciting to look at God's story of liberating His people from all that would enslave them. And the past few weeks, we've been in a part of the book near the end that focuses on God's presence. God commands His people to build a tabernacle, a place, a space for God's presence. Last week, we looked at God commanding His people to observe Sabbath, which is a time set aside to uniquely experience God's presence. And this morning, we look at a famous passage uh, where God's people build a uh, golden calf. Uh, We see what happens when we're in time and God's presence doesn't seem to be there. When we're waiting on God to work, when His presence seems absent and how we respond. So I'm going to read our passage. Uh, Really, it's chapters 32 all the way to 34, but I'm just going to read Uh, The first six verses of Exodus 32. Exodus 32, beginning in verse 1. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, Up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So Aaron said to them, Take off the rings of gold that are in the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it, and Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. And they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. This is the word of God for the people of God. Well, the text begins, it sets the context for us. They're at Mount Sinai waiting on Moses. It says, when the people saw that Moses delayed to come down the mountain. Now Moses has been up there, we learn, for 40 days and 40 nights. And that timing did not fit with God's people's timing. Moses was delayed. I can relate to that. I don't like delays, personally. I can be very impatient. I struggle to wait at a stoplight. When I'm at a stoplight, driving a car, I'm not looking at the red light right in front of me. I'm looking to the lights to the side. And as soon as I see that green light go yellow, I start to creep forward, and when it's red and mine goes green, I'm ready. I'm off. I don't like to be delayed. A lot of us struggle to wait. We don't like delays. Let me present a few scenarios, and you can think to yourself about how you'd respond in these situations. Imagine you're driving your car, pull up to a toll booth, and you notice the driver of the car in front of you chatting it up with the toll worker. They're hanging, they're talking, and you're thinking, what's, what's happening here? And, and then you see the driver take out 
his or her wallet. You think, okay, finally, they're going to pay the toll. But it looks like they get out a, a picture, some kind of family picture, and they're showing the toll worker. The toll worker's looking at it, smiling. They're laughing, having a good time. How are you tempted to respond? What are you thinking in that moment? Are you thinking, A, oh, this is so great. You know, there's not enough love and kindness in the world. It's so wonderful to see a toll worker talking with a random driver looking at pictures. I can't wait for my turn. I can't wait for my turn to get up and meet this toll worker. I wonder what their name is. Do I have any pictures I can show them? Maybe I have an invitation card for church that I can give to this toll worker because I'm so excited to meet them. Or do you look at the situation and think, this is why they invented horns. Lay on the horn. If that's not working, you wonder, is there enough space to back up and get into another line because there's a delay. I'm ready to get past this toll booth and this toll worker. Another scenario, maybe you can relate with this one. You're at the airport, and you arrived on time. And you checked in, you got your ticket, bags are checked, you're walking to your gate, and on your way, you look up at that screen, and you notice your flight right next to it has the red letters delayed. How do you respond in that moment? Is there a part of you that thinks, oh, you know what? This is really nice. Delayed. This is an opportunity. I see over here the airline worker at their little booth dealing with people. I'm going to use this chance to go up and thank them for all their work. I mean, after all, think of all that needs to take place in order for me to fly in the tube through the sky to end up in a place that if I were driving my car, it would be hours, days later. I am so thankful for all the work that they do to, make, to get me to that place safely. I just want to go and thank them for the work. And maybe while I'm at it, I can talk to some of the other passengers and we can just share about the good things happening in our life. Or, do you see that red delay, look at the airline worker and think, what an injustice. What an injustice. I'm here on time. I paid my money. They need to do their job. What is going on? I don't see a cloud in the sky. Why is my flight delayed? We struggle with delays. Moses is up there 40 days. 40 days. I get anxious and feel threatened when I have to wait a few minutes or hours. But you know, there are some delays in life that are more significant than a flight delay or waiting at a toll booth or red light. Some of us are in seasons of waiting. And in fact, all of us are waiting on something. We're waiting, and oftentimes life can feel like one giant delay. Some, some are waiting to meet and find the person who they can marry. And each wedding they're invited to, each Instagram post and picture of a friend engaged, engaged is a reminder that they're still just waiting. Some, uh, in fact, is starting up school this week, 
Uh, some students are just waiting to be finished, finished with school, right from the get-go. You're, you go, you get the syllabus, and you're ready for it to be done, waiting to move past this season of life when you can work and life gets really fun. Uh, some are waiting on a promotion at work. You see your peers being recognized for their work, and you wonder when someone's going to notice what you're doing. And we wonder when we will be acknowledged for our hard work, wondering if our boss cares. Do people notice? Is this a place for me? Waiting on that promotion. Some are waiting to have kids. Others waiting for their kids to get old enough so that they can sleep at night. And then waiting for them to start school so you have a little more free time in the day. And then waiting for them to leave the house so you have a little more free time in life. And then waiting for them to return so you can spend time with them. All of us in some levels are in a season of waiting. What are you waiting for? What does God feel like he's delaying in your life? You know, this morning, as we look at this pivotal passage, I want us to consider two things as it comes to replacing God, because that's what God's people do. They craft an idol. One, that impatience reveals idolatry. And two, how Jesus can liberate us from the idols that would enslave us. Uh, First, what do we learn about our idolatry in our impatience? And second, how Jesus can bring freedom in this area. So first, looking at how our impatience reveals our idolatry. One of the things we see, one of the things it reveals about us is that we can idolize sentimental practices. We idolize sentimental and religious behavior and practices. In verse 1, it says, up, or when, when God's people, they speak to Aaron, they say, up, make us gods who shall go before us. The people here in the situation, they're feeling a little vulnerable. They're in the desert. And it seems like Moses and God are delayed, and they want some protection. They want someone to go before them to continue to work. So they take matters into their own hands. And there's a little bit of a misconception on what exactly they do. In crafting an idol, it's not that they're crafting a different God. Uh, The term, it says gods, translated in the ESV, gods, uh, the term is Elohim in the Hebrew, and, and that's a term often used to refer to Yahweh. And what God's people are doing is they build a bull, which probably was a stepping stool for God. They craft an image of Yahweh. It's not that they're creating another different God. They're crafting an image of God himself, which contradicted what God commanded them to do. He said, do not make any idols. You build a tabernacle for my presence, not an idol. And God's people They take matters into their own hands, and they build an idol. Now, why would they do this? Why do they do this? Why do they build an idol of Yahweh when he commands them not to? Well, the reason is simple. Because they come and live in a culture where this was the expected practice. This was what they were used to. This was comfortable for them. We look at idols, and it doesn't make sense. For many of us in our Western culture, we, we look at idols and we think, what, what's the deal? Why would you take gold and build an idol? We have no use for that. It's just a thing. Why would someone do that? I remember uh, a few years ago in India, one of the leaders in India was explaining the challenge uh, for many former Buddhists and Hindus when it comes to relating to God. They're so used to having an idol 
that reflected and represented God's presence, that then to worship God in a way that didn't have an idol was a big challenge. And many would have idols in their home because it, was, it comforted them. It was what they were used to in their religious practice and experience. But even though we might not today have idols, images of Yahweh or God, we have gods, we have expressions, ways of relating to God that replace him today. Uh, one in particular in America One way we try to replace God, we have an idol shaped by our culture that we bathe in God talk and Jesus talk is American sentimentality. The idea that God wants us to fulfill and experience the American dream. That God's primary desire for us is a life of ease, comfort, security, and prosperity. And so we, we, and we want to feel this. It's driven not by certain truths about God or life, but this feeling of sentimentality, feeling of closeness with God because we experience some sense of comfort. Uh, one theologian, uh, Stanley Harawas, put it this way. He said, the greatest enemy of the church today is not atheism, but sentimentality. The greatest enemy is not something outside the church, but it's this conviction inside the church that what God merely wants for us is to feel safe, feel secure. Another author unpacking this, Rodney Clapp, in his book about Johnny Cash, where he explores the crossover of country music, American culture, and the church. It's a great book. I highly recommend it. He makes this observation. The quote will be on the screen. He says, Because idolatry is the most destructive of sinful conditions, the greatest danger to the true faithfulness of the American church comes not from without, but from within. That danger is not persecution or victimization or accusations of hypocrisy, but our own all-too-easy tendency to sentimentalize our faith. To sentimentalize the faith is to instrumentize it, to make it a tool of our ambitions, our comfort, and our security. Sentimentalization is mild-mannered idolatry, sin sweetened and trivialized. Sentimentality kills vital faith with bland complacency. What he's saying is this, there's this temptation, and particularly a temptation in American evangelicalism that believes God's desire for you and I is that we just experience this nice, easy, safe, secure life. Are you worshiping God or the American dream? One expression of idolatry is sentimental practices. Another thing that impatience reveals about our idolatry is we can idolize present satisfaction. We idolize pleasant, present pleasure, momentary satisfaction. And again, in our text we just read in verse 1, it says, up. God's people say, they say to Aaron, up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, I like this, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we don't know what became of him. Like Moses, he's, he's old news. Aaron, you're, you're the man now. We need something today. Moses, God, that's old news. We need something new. 
And then notice the timing. Uh, Time is very important in this text. In verse 5, look at verse 5. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it, and Aaron made a proclamation and said, listen to the timing here, tomorrow you shall be a feast to the Lord. And they rose up early the next day. It's like this idea of Christmas. Can you imagine this, God's people? They're excited for now. They've been waiting. Where's Moses been? We don't know. We need someone new. Aaron steps in, says, tomorrow we will worship. And they go to bed excited, eager, maybe lost some sleep like my kids when they go to bed the night before Christmas. They wake up the next day ready to go. You see the now, what happens right now. Moses, God, that's old news. They didn't so much want God. They wanted what God could provide in that moment. You know, many of us today struggle with instant and immediate gratification. Uh, the famous psychologist Sigmund Freud coined the term the pleasure principle. And uh, maybe you're familiar with this. He basically said that human beings at birth have the id, the part of our personality that is, has primitive urges including hunger, thirst, sex, and anger. Like every human being is born with these primitive urges that he calls the id. And, and kids, those of us who are parents and you have young children, you can... So you say, yes, that makes sense. You know, when you have a baby and they're hungry, what do they do? They cry. And they don't let out like a little whimper, like, mm, I'm hungry. I'm, I'm. Wow. <laughs> you didn't know I was going to be mimicking a baby. But they don't cry with like a little whimper and then wait patiently for you to provide some milk. No, that's not what happens. They get hungry and they scream and cry until, until they are fed. That's what a child does. Now, what is supposed to happen in life, uh, Sigmund Freud says, is that the ego is developed. And the ego is the part of our personality that learns how to fulfill the desires of the id in a way that is socially acceptable. So we still have these urges, but we learn to say no to things, delay things, not get exactly what we want. We learn to live and operate in socially acceptable behavior. But there's one problem in our day and age today. And that is, and if you're in marketing major, you know the principle. <laughs> uh, marketing companies prey on the pleasure principle. They craft strategies that seek to tap into you're in our desire to get things immediately. And because we live in a mass marketing age, an age of consumerism, we're so used to getting exactly what we want when we want that we just live life with this mentality. We feel entitled to what we want now. And if someone does not satisfy that pleasure, that urge, we'll move on to something else. Many of us have this idolatry, the idolatry of what has God, what is life bringing to me right now? Present satisfaction. Everything is boiled down to getting our desires immediately. So the question for us and for you, does the pleasure principle shape how you relate to God? Do you look to God and say, God, what have you done for me lately? Yeah, in the past, that was old news. What about now? one expression of idolatry. Another expression, how impatience reveals our idolatry, is we idolize progress. Many of us idolize progress. Moses isn't hacking it anymore. We need someone who's going to get this done. 
And you might be thinking, you know, yeah, those people who are shaped by the pleasure principle, you know, I'm better than that. I can delay some gratification. I can wait as long as it feels like I'm getting closer to what I want. And so we can live in this mindset that we always need to be moving forward. We always need some, the big M word, momentum. If we're stagnant, if it doesn't feel like we're making progress, then it feels like we're regressing. This American way of living that prioritizes moving forward, progress, momentum. We want momentum socially. We want to feel like our society is taking steps in the right direction. And when that feeling is threatened, we don't know how to deal with it. We're despairing. We want social momentum, social progress. We want momentum organizationally in your business or even in a local church. When it doesn't feel like we're taking steps forward, it feels like a loss. I think we've been a season, in a season like that at Scarlet City as it relates to the building, feeling the season of needing to just wait and that almost feeling like a loss. The temptation to just want to move forward. We feel we want momentum personally. Uh, many of us, we want to climb the corporate ladder. We want to advance. And when it feels like that's not happening, we don't know what to do. We want momentum. Progress is a good thing. But it, when it becomes an ultimate thing, it's an idol. It can replace God. And, and you know, this idea of progress, because there can be a part of you that might be thinking, what, what's wrong with that? You know, when progress becomes an idol, when it becomes what we're living for, there's a, there's a degree of foolishness with that way of living. You know, because much of the real progress in life goes unseen. Before someone is seen as successful, there's so many little decisions, so many things happening behind the scenes that others may not have noticed that led to that eventual success. When you think of planting something, when you think of fruit, you don't just plant a seed in the ground and sit there and stare at it and then question, what, where's the progress? You know, no progress. I, this apple tree, I need to see some apples here. No, there are seasons, seasons of sowing and seasons of reaping. To only view success based on the progress that you can see is to be a fool. And also one of the problems of progress and idolizing it is it can dehumanize other people. You see, when we're preoccupied with our progress in life, we will look at other people who don't seem to have, who don't seem to help us take the next step as insignificant. Rather than seeing them as an image bearer of God, we see them as someone who has no help for me. And so we won't prioritize those kind of relationships. We can idolize progress. And patience reveals that we can idolize religious or uh, religious expressions, present uh, satisfaction, progress, and lastly, we can idolize control. God's people, they want to take matters into their own hands. They want a new leader. They want to craft an image of God. They want to move forward. They don't want to be waiting on God and Moses to show up under his timing. And when we're forced to wait, you know, 
when we're forced to stop and wait, it reminds us of our lack of control. When you're at the airport and the, the airline employee says there's a delay, you're reminded of your lack of control. When you're driving your car and you're in traffic, just stuck on the highway, you're reminded of your lack of control. And, and I know for me, because this is a struggle for me personally, I would rather just drive a longer distance and be moving forward and under control than just sitting and waiting, even if sitting and waiting in traffic meant I got there quicker. I just want control. Could it be that God puts us in positions of waiting to remind us that we aren't as in control as we think we are? We idolize control. We idolize progress. We idolize so many things. We idolize present comfort and experiences. Now the question is, what do we do? You know, how can we find some sense of liberation? There's a part where you almost just want to say, look, just stop making golden calves. Stop worshiping it. But we continue to do it because golden calves, these idols, they have power over us. We give them power. They have power over us. We must understand the nature of the liberation that God can bring, the goodness, the joy that God can bring in our lives and the ways in which these idols enslave us. And so as we close, just really briefly, how when Jesus becomes the center of your life in the same way that this idol was crafted and put at the center of God's people in hopes that it would free them, it would liberate them, when Jesus becomes the center of your life, how he can liberate you where idols enslave you. Four practical ways as we kind of wrap up our time. First, when Jesus is at the center, you are liberated to be present with people in pain. You're liberated to be present with people in pain. You know, the problem of sentimentality, this way of living that, that views God as just wanting to give you comfort is that when life becomes uncomfortable or you're presented with opportunities to enter into the discomforts of others, you'll only go so far. You'll only go so far. You know, God has placed you and I in this world to enter into the discomforts of our world. After all, Jesus left the comfort of heaven, took the discomfort of the cross so that we could be united with God. God's will and calling in your life is not that you and your family just experience the safety and comfort that the world has to offer, but that you enter into the pains, problems, and injustices of life, bringing healing. When Jesus is at the center, we're liberated to be present with people in pain. Also, when Jesus is at the center, we're liberated to find pleasure in the God who ultimately satisfies. When we live our life seeking momentary and present satisfaction, we are searching. We are searching for someone who will come in and make us whole. 
We are searching for joy, but we always end up wanting more. It is a dead-end street. Uh, this past summer, uh, Megan and I and our family were in Louisiana uh, celebrating the wedding of Ben and Rachel. And one of the mornings there, I got up to go on a run in a neighborhood, and I was excited to go on this run. And I, I had a vision of this run, what it was going to look like. I was going to go run, see the countryside, see these open roads. And I start running, and a little bit into it, this dog, this small little dog, starts chasing me. And this dog... It was annoying. I'm like, what are you doing? And the dog had other dog friends. And he starts barking, and all the dogs from the neighborhood come, and they're basically attacked. I mean, they're not biting me. I, I didn't feel really threatened, but they're chasing me. Do you know those dogs? Ben? Yeah, Ben lives there. He knows those dogs. And they're chasing me, and so I'm thinking, okay, if I just run this way, I'll find an open street, and I'll be away from these dogs. I run, run into a dead end. Oh, no. Have to turn around, run through the dogs. Oh, this street will take me to an open path. Run, another dead end, run back. And I didn't find an o the open country nice road that I thought I would, so I spent about six miles just running between dead ends with dogs chasing me. You know, many of us were running and it feels like there are these dogs chasing and barking at us. And we think if we could just find the thing that will make us happy, that will give this momentary satisfaction, we think we'll find an open road. But what we find is dead end after dead end after dead end after dead end. When Jesus becomes the center of your life, he liberates you. He is the open path in which true and lasting joy, independent of the dogs barking at you, can be found. Jesus liberates us from the slavery of momentary satisfaction. There is a weight, a depth, a joy that transcends our present circumstances and satisfaction. Jesus liberates. Uh, we also see Jesus brings liberation. When he is the center of your life, he liberates you to see people as human beings. Again, when we're in a progress mindset, it shapes how we view other people. Our boys, when we're waiting uh, for Megan to be in the grocery store, which takes her a while sometimes, uh, we often play a game, I spy. Anyone else, I spy? You know, college students, you're like, I spy. It's been a long time, but uh, I spy. It's fun to play with your kids, and, uh, and the way it works, it's not challenging. You're like, I spy something red, and so I look, and I survey, some, where's something red that my uh, three-year-old Jack would see, and so there's a red car. There's a red car, and Jack, he cheats. You know, he'll, like, change it. It was obviously the red car, but when I say the red car, I say, no. So I'll, like, go through all the things that are red, and then they'll come back and be like, it was the red car. I'm like, thanks, Jack, you know, cheater. <laughs> it's this game, I spy, you, I spy. You want to see something that another person sees. When we look at people, what do we see? What do we see? Do we see people how God sees them? People created in his image. When God thought an image bearer of his, he said it was going to be human beings. It would be people, you and me, not a little collection of gold. 
Do we see people as human beings worthy of our love and presence regardless of the progress that they can bring in our life? Or do we idolize progress and therefore only pay attention to the people who can allow us to take the next step? Jesus liberates us to see people as human beings. Lastly, Jesus liberates us to rest in God's providential power. When the airline attendant comes over the loudspeaker and says, flight delayed, and the anxiety rises up. When you're in a season of waiting, waiting to meet the person you will marry, waiting to get past school, waiting for the promotion, and you are brought to the ends of what you can manage in life, Jesus can liberate you. He invites you into a story where he is good and he is able. We can rest in life because we know and believe that God is in control. Friends, in our impatience, our idolatry is revealed. Let's look to Jesus, who when placed at the center, leads us to the open path, allows us to rest invites us into the work of seeing people and entering into their pain. Let's pray. Father, God who sees us, a God who sees us in the pains and struggles of life. Thank you for being a God of good news. That you just don't call us to worship you arbitrarily, but you know it is for our good that you, when placed at the center, bring ultimate liberation. And God, I know personally, and I know for many of us here, that idolat- there are some idols that have a hold on us. The power can feel great. Grant us the courage, God, to bring them to light, to have their enslavement exposed. And may we place you at the center and find freedom. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.